Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Officially unofficial podcast for House of the Dragon on HBO. I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. And today we're back for another episode covering season one, episode two, uh, The Rogue Prince. It's the feedback episode. Aaron, how are we doing in the feedback department this week? We got a lot, but I got a couple of things that I want to tackle that's not strictly feedback uh, up front. Mm, okay. The big one is uh, breaking news out of the Hollywood Reporter Miguel Sapochnik out as co showrunner. Alan Taylor in as new showrunner going forward for season two. Who is this Um, Alan Taylor that he thinks he can fill those shoes? Yeah. Well, I mean, Alan, we're going to talk about Alan. Well, actually, let's start. So Alan Taylor, if you're freaking out, take take a couple deep breaths. Put your head between your knees. Deep breaths. Airline crash position. Deep breaths. It's going to be okay. Um, Alan Taylor's actually got a lot going on for him. Uh, he is a pretty well-established TV director. He directed in one year the in- Emmy-nominated Smoke Gets in Your Eyes episode from Mad Men, as well as the Beyond the Wall episode from Game of Thrones. Uh, he's directed multiple episodes of The West Wing, Law, Sopranos, Boardwalk Empire, Deadwood. Directed, I think, 10 episodes of Game of Thrones in total. It's like one-eighth of its entire series run. Uh, and he has got a long and fruitful collaboration with, in particular, HBO. His movie directing is a little bit sketchier. He's done Thor, The Dark World, Terminator Genesis, and The Many Saints of Newark, um, which I enjoyed for what it was. It just wasn't as, you know, uh, Sopranos as I was was hoping. Um, So I think we're in capable hands with Alan Taylor. Um, Apparently, Miguel Sapochnik, he did not want to come back to Game of Thrones. Uh, Okay. He said I was. He could not say that before the series started airing. No, he did. They would have had him dropped into the ocean somewhere. (laughs) He he said, I didn't want to come back to Thrones, and they had to kind of woo him, and he was still saying no. And and the story in this Hollywood Reporter uh, article is that him and his wife were at some kind of concert where they were playing Game of Thrones music, and this was like. A, you know, just before House of the Dragon was going to start, you know, in pre-production and like there was like, he said 17,000 people in attendance and people were going mad and his wife is like, what are we doing? Why, why, why? Like, look how much love there is for this still. Um, and I guess the rub here is that House of the, the Game of Thrones engine now embodied in House of the Dragon is just a grind. It's nearly a year round death march of mm-hmm. pre-production, production, post-production, tour junket. You get a week or two off and then right back into pre-production. And Miguel was looking at, you know, his his life and like, do I want to sign on for three or f- three, three more seasons of this? And apparently the answer is no. So. 
Uh, Ryan Connell staying on as the, you know, head of the writing room and the, you know, creative liaison between Germ and and the show and, you know, guiding it forward. But we're going to have a new, you know, the, the Ryan Connell described his style as confident and cinemat- cinematic Alan Taylor. And he's very excited okay. about the opportunity. So on a scale of uh, one to ten. Uh, light treason to high treason. <laughs> what kind of treason is this that Sapochnik has committed, and how worried are you? Uh, I mean, now's the time to do it if you're going to do it, right? They've renewed for season two. They're, I'm sure they have not ramped up for production on that yet. Um, or if they are, they're they're just about to start, like you said, sure. with the year-round stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so now is the time to do it, and you know, the thing I find interesting is that they're bringing in another primarily director to replace him because that's what Miguel Sapochnik is. He's primarily a director, which is not what I think of when I think of a showrunner. When I think of a showrunner, right. I think of somebody who has a lot of writing experience, uh, a, a lot of experience telling cohesive narrative stories. Um, but maybe that speaks to how closely entwined, you know, the the narrative and the visual elements of this show can be. Uh, and that's probably a good thing overall, because if Ryan Condal can do his job well and direct the story, uh, then directing what's on screen can be left or, or, you know, not even directing. I mean, I'm sure Alan Taylor's not going to direct every episode, but he will be sure. involved in shaping the story for directors who are going to direct the episode. So I'm I don't know. It's it's I'm not super worried about it. Because it is between seasons. If this was some big fallout where like Frank Darabont had with like The Walking Dead. Yeah. Yeah. That would be another story. I think uh, it seems like this was amicable. So, yeah, mm-hmm. go for it. I, I don't blame anybody for not wanting to get stuck in that kind of grind and just yeah. not feeling like it's right for their life. No, it makes perfect sense because it's a huge opportunity, obviously. And Miguel has, um, you know, profited from it. You know, he's got a bunch of like movies and series he's kind of developing, um, you know, that maybe is a little less of a grind or even if it's the same grind, it's a different type of grind um, and kind of more of his own thing. So I, I guess I'm the I'm with you. Uh, I would be a lot more worried if Ryan Condal took the exit because I'm a lot more worried about yeah. uh, honestly, it seems like the in front of the camera stuff is so well, like they got such a experienced crew, multi mm-hmm. camera unit crew, the effects guys, the sound effects people, the, VFX people, everyone is kind of locked in and kind of has this kind of look and feel down. I'm glad Miguel was there to kind of like, you know, make sure that 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 came across. Um, yeah. And it, it was a huge, you know, because like, honestly, Ryan Connell is a giant question mark for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Miguel Sapochnik, I'm like, oh, yeah, I like yeah, he, he knows how to shoot Game of Thrones. He knows how mm-hmm. to do the action. He knows how to do the, the whole thing. Um, I'd be a lot more worried if at this point Condal took off because then I'd start thinking, oh, God is George going to get along with the next guy? Are they going to have, <laughs> right. you know, the same kind of like respect and confidence in the material that's uh Condal's got, you know, what are we getting into? Uh, and I, I'm with you. I also think that the, the, this division of labor seems smart. You know, this is such a massive beast to, it's like throwing your leg over Balerion, the black dread, uh, having somebody just worrying about the story and the future of the show and somebody trying to make it actually happen. It seems like that's a pretty good division of labor. Mm-hmm. So 
Yeah, I'm not super worried. And again, like Alan Taylor is a great way to have me not freak out because he has huge Game of Thrones experience, huge prestige experience, quite a bit of pulp experience, to be honest. And uh, he's directed some of the best episodes of television I've seen, uh, some of the best episodes of, of Game of Thrones. So I think we'll be fine. I if I'm you know, obviously this puts a lot of pressure on season two. You know, because there is this kind of like change in horses in midstream and there will probably be a lot of nervous Nellies. Um, you know, even if this season finishes very strong and confidently, people are going to be like, but Miguel and and mm-hmm. um, yeah, but I don't think I'm, I'm super worried about it. But uh, that's the news. And I'm sure there is probably a lot of I, I saw a little bit, a fair amount of uh, teeth gnashing and fingernail chewing yesterday about it. But I. You know, let's get through the season and see if it it hangs together and then we can maybe start getting worried about next season. But I'm not super worried. Let's remember what happened the last time a creator got stuck on a show uh, in the Game of Thrones universe that they didn't want to be on. Yeah. Come on. If the double D's had exited season five, season six, whenever they started getting bored with this thing. And handed it off. Yeah. And handed it off to somebody who actually cared, had fresh energy. You might have gotten an entirely different show, uh, a, a better show. I don't know. Maybe you got a worse show, but you you have the potential there. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not freaking out either. I think this this could be a fine thing. A couple other things. I got this a lot in email, but it's a very short concept, and a ton of people sent it on. Uh, um, which is Otto Hightower's Raven message from the pilot episode, the premiere episode. With the six months time time jump, do you think that will ever have any kind of significance? Because now I'm starting to think that it's uh, just he's just he's the hand of the king. Uh, the queen died. He's ha- has to do a lot of stuff, and he's you know uh, the the scene was more about him positioning Allison, and he was just doing hand of the king shit. You yeah, know, I'm gonna be like late the hand of, for get, getting home from work. Sorry, yeah, yeah, <laughs> kind of yeah, to my dead wife. Uh, uh-huh. You know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, don't don't let the ro- the roast beef burn. Because uh, yeah, how can it be? I, I mean, I guess they can always fill in significance later, but it feels like maybe this is a, real, a bit of a red airing. Yeah, yeah, it could be. I, I don't know. I mean, how, how behind the scenes, you know, is his plot going to be? Is he is he moving stuff? Did did he have communication somehow with the crab feeder? It tells him now's the time to go in. Mm. Start feeding uh, you crabs. can really piss off Corliss if he did this. Yeah, I, I don't know. Now that would be interesting because on a scale of one to ten, that's eleven treason. Oh yeah. Like if you're actually conducting clandestine <laughs> messaging with foreign powers to undermine the legitimate, yeah, that's that's sure. that's outdoing the Corliss and Damon treason show. <laughs> uh, that's heavy, heavy, extra, uh, sharp. It's sharp, sharp treason. Yeah, and I'm not saying that's necessarily what's happening. I'm just, you know, there could be six month plans that are in motion, especially in that world. It takes a long time to execute some plans. Everybody's trying to pattern match. The, and, you know, we had that one season where Tywin's writing a lot. You know, it just seems like every time you walked in on him, he's writing Ravens and sending it. And it culminated into the Red Wedding. So, like, yeah. I think there's a lot of people who are similarly looking to because there are a lot of patterns to match, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Rhaenyra. Broadly speaking, is an Arya type with a little dash of Danny. Uh, Otto is, you know, half Ned Stark, half Littlefinger, which is quite the test tube baby. Viserys um, is a bit of a Rob in this episode. <laughs> yeah, he's doing doing Rob things. So um, 
And those are as pat- just as much George Martin patterns or as they are Game of Thrones patterns, which probably right. obvious now that I'm saying it. Um, the final fact I got a surprising amount of feedback on is the fart not heard around the world. Many, many, many people uh, said that they did not hear the fart in the first episode. And I will say that uh, I have a very good sound system on my TV. And when I played it, I don't know if it's a mix or whether I got the subwoofer turned down too much. I did not hear the fart and I heard it every hmm. play through since I, a lot of people over across the pond, across Atlantic ocean seem to be reporting. And I wonder if, is there an odd standards and practice in like the UK that they're allowed to show dismemberments, but you can't hear. Cause like is doesn't UK have some kind of weird pornography law where like they're way more restrictive on what they can show in porn now. And is like, is farts one of those things that's, a big bugaboo with the Brits. Maybe you can't show the source of the fart. You can play a fart. You can show an ass, but you can't do them both. If you do, you have to, you have to pixel it, pixelate it like Japanese born. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If there's any, if there's any (laughs) flapping cheeks, you just have to pixelate Uh it because you can't, it's, it's vulgar. It's vulgar. No, I'm curious if the people who didn't hear it went back and listened to it again like looked for it specifically or not because i didn't hear it on the first watch either on the second watch i absolutely did so yeah i don't know yeah i don't know it was uh if so like yeah uh, it was definitely there uh but i I can't swear overseas if there's some weird standards and practices that you know like some Mm -hmm. some european countries it's super cool to have even commercials and stuff in prime time with like bare breasts and stuff certainly not the case here in america that would be a wild violation of cultural norms probably dumb so maybe there's a bugaboo about farts who knows uh Mm -hmm. those are the kind of pre-feedback biz i wanted to get to let's get right to the questions uh if you like to send us feedback for consideration of our feedback episode, it's real easy. Hot D at baldmove.com. That is the one and only source. You can send it to other places, maybe get a response, maybe not. Uh, hot D at baldmove.com is the only place you can send in feedback for consideration on this here episode. First up is Adam says, I've noticed all the women I know share two common opinions about the show thus far. One, nobody wants to look at Matt Smith. Uh, raising an eyebrow at that opinion and two, the attitude the showrunners has come across as hey we know it's hard to be a woman so let's watch all these women suffer aren't we so feminist and they find <laughs> it extremely grating i realize the inherent problem in asking two dudes to opine on the matter but do you think it's yeah. something the show will correct over time or is just an unavoidable problem due to the nature of the source material yeah there's probably a certain amount of unavoidability to it yeah you, this is not the show you go to watch your heroes not suffer right And to the extent that we have multiple uh, women protagonists and antagonists, it's likely that we're going to see them suffer greatly, you know? Um, And I get it. Like uh, not everybody is in for that kind of good time and not everybody is interested in seeing that kind of stuff. But I think that is what we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to see more of the same. I will say that like, I, I mean, I don't think Matt Smith is everybody's cup of tea. But if he's your cup of tea, uh-huh. it does seem like people like to drink and they're pretty thirsty for tea. So mm. he's I'll like one of those Adam driver things. types, maybe that like you either really get it or you don't get it at all. Yeah, I get Adam driver. I don't get Matt Smith. Sorry. Oh, yeah. You get yeah. Adam driver. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't think that's a lot because I to me, I was I was big worried about 
Matt Smith pulling off Damon Targaryen. I don't worry about that at all. Like that pretty much dissipated oh, the yeah. first first episode. First scene is the first episode that I saw him in. Um, and, you know, whether he gets people hot and bothered in his dorky dragon helmet or not, that's a secondary concern. So <laughs> for sure. Um, but yeah, I, I, I saw on the first one, like, yeah, I think there's going to be there's going to be a lot of lot of suffering women, a lot of suffering men, of course. But, you know, um, I, I guess the things I've heard, because I've heard quite a few women comment in a professional capacity. I'm listening to a bunch of, you know, in early goings. I'm listening to a lot of people's podcasts and seeing how they're talking about the show. Um, but I, I think it's not so much of like the suffering of the women, but like, can we think of other ways that women can suffer other exactly. than through you know, in a fantasy series where we can come up with any, but again, the source material is kind of already a thing and, mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, it, it is what it is. So I don't think that thing, I, yeah, I don't think either of those things are, are going to change anytime soon. Raphael says just a few things. I think the show is trying too hard to be game of Thrones. The Prince that was promised prophecy took me aback in the latest episode, but I regained my footing However, when I heard the Game of Thrones theme song, theme song at the start, I was like, WTF? Are they just lacking in confidence? I think the show needs to stand on its own to have a good future. We already have so many reminders that we're in the Game of Thrones universe. Targaryens, dragons, famous names, famous houses. That should be enough. The show has some really good actors. However, I'm taking it by episode by episode. Are we ever going to leave these interior settings at some point? I think the show seems pretty closed down as far as venues. Uh, might be a cost thing. After all, dragons are expensive to feed. Anyway, fingers crossed. What do you think about the Game of Thrones-iness of House of Dragons and the kind of cramped confines? We seem to largely be taking place in King's Landing and the immediately surrounding settings like Dragonstone. What's your take on this? Uh, My take on it is much like the intro we're going to branch out as we get further into the show. Um, all the action kind of takes place. I mean, the story starts at King's Landing here. So I'm not super worried about that. And and as far as like feeling like it's Game of Thrones, I guess that's kind of what I wanted. I mean, Game of Thrones, especially early on, was a great show. And like, I don't I, I guess I don't need this to feel super distinctive. Yeah. If it feels like Game of Thrones, I'll be I'll be happy enough. If they want to take it somewhere, but how can you? Right? It's like it's a hundred years, almost two hundred years, whatever in the past. Shit doesn't change that much in that universe. Yeah, yeah. In in two hundred years, go back a thousand, maybe we'll talk about a, a different feeling show. But mm-hmm. like you know, it it's not like modern day where you jump forward two hundred years and everything has changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, and we get even more feedback about some of that stuff too later on in the mailbag, but I, I guess I don't have a problem with it. You know, I, I look at this as like star Wars and star Trek and doesn't interesting franchises because star Wars is very with minor exception has very similar music and a very similar fanfare. Star Trek mm-hmm. seems to be all over the place. Like every series has its own distinct music and musical cues and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I've seen it, 
both ways. And, you know, you definitely have like warp drive and, te- and transporters and phasers and, and Klingons and Vulcans that kind of tie the universe together. But I, I don't mind the branding being very much like, hey, when you hear the dun, 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 you know, you're in Westeros, you know, you're in Essos, you know, you're on Planetos and there's going to be dragons and magic and intrigue and violence against women. Uh, things you <laughs> right. can count on when it comes to the Game of Thrones project. Uh, yeah. So I, 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 and then, you know, I think that, um, again, everyone's a little gripped up because the, the last relationship didn't end well and we're carrying a little bit of that baggage into the new one. And it could, our hearts could still be rent, ladies and gentlemen, but I haven't seen any flashing red lights thus far. Mm-hmm. But uh, we'll see. Your, your uh, tolerance might be different from mine. Maria has some confusion saying, what's the difference between the long night that was first referenced in Game of Thrones season one, episode one? You're right. The uh, old Nan terrifying brand. It might not have been the first episode. I think she was telling him that when he was bedridden. Right. And the prophecy of Aegon's dream and a prince that was promised. But wasn't the long night pretty much the same thing as what happens in Game of Thrones with the White Walkers? When Viserys talks to Rhaenyra and tells her about the prophecy as a viewer, I can't help but think, well, it's happened already. So what's the big deal? Can you explain the difference? Is there really one or did the long night happen so long ago? It's out of everyone's minds. So, like, you got to think about the long night and the prince that was promised and Azora High and all these other because all these are different versions of kind of the same story that we see across all the cultures of Planetos. And I think what George was getting at is very similar to like the flood monomyth where for some reason, all of the cultures of the world seem to agree that in our distant past, uh, bad shit with water happened and there was few survivors and et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of like really interesting parallels. Now, does that mean that Noah got in an ark with two by two animals and, you know, did 40 days and 40? No, not necessarily. I mean, look what's going on in Pakistan right now. Mm-hmm. A third of that country is underwater, probably as a big result of climate change. And you think about how long humans have been walking around thinking on this planet, 100, 200,000 years. You think about how many uh, the, uh, gl- the end of a glacial period and what kind of climate change would happen in that kind of epoch. And imagine something like, you know, in, in Mesopotamia, as civilizations trying to get started, a Pakistan situation. Mm -hmm. that would stick with man as they started walking across the globe and taking their myths and mythologies with it. So you might, you know, the, the, the Epic of Gilgamesh is different than the, the the Noah story, which is different from the tales that they tell in India and different from the uh, flood myths of uh, the central and South America. But the details are kind of all similar because it might have been based on something real. And in the Game of Thrones time, the long night happened literally thousands of years ago in what they would consider their prehistory. There's no written records of what happened there. And it's something that affected the entire world. And I think from the Maesters perspective, they probably are looking at it like, well, we do have these winters and some of them are super brutal. We can envision a uh, winter that's exceptionally brutal and killed so many people that it became this whole big thing, you know, um, because like it's at this time in Westeros, the long night has seen as kind of a myth, you know, like mm-hmm. educated people don't believe in it. So I think. I think you're supposed to think of it in very similar terms as like Noah's Noah's Ark and the flood. And it may have been had a basis of something real that really just terrified us deep down into our core and maybe might have ended us. But it's also 
you know, in the Game of Thrones universe, literally true that mm-hmm. White Walkers on ice spiders are going to come out and kill us all every once in a while, unless we're vigilant. So hopefully that helps. Uh, ben D says, I think I can give you some information on the questions you had about the double D's on Martin's relationship in the book Tinderbox, which is a book about the history of HBO, the head of HBO and HBO creative head uh, are interviewed. There's a section specifically on Game of Thrones. Supposedly, Martin, during the development of Game of Thrones, went to HBO's headquarters in New York to try to get them to extend the series. And HBO execs are like, hell yeah, we like printing money. Meanwhile, the Double D's were telling HBO, no, the conflict between the Double D's and Martin stems from that. The reason HBO didn't side with Martin was that its policy was to let showrunners decide and HBO supports that decision. (sighs) Yeah, that's definitely something HBO is known for. And it might have bit him in the ass. Um yeah. God, what a bunch of dicks the double D's are, though, that they would rather run something into the ground than hand it off to somebody and go play in their star. Like if they had just done that, they'd probably already be halfway through fucking up a Star Wars trilogy. <laughs> their two hundred million dollar Netflix deal would probably still be, you know, coming to fruit. Um, but, you know, you, 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 you act like an asshole and and uh, you get fucked. Uh <laughs> What do you think about because I this kind of this kind of this makes a lot of sense. It's also becoming increasingly clear that as there's distance between Game of Thrones and the present day, Martin seems like he's feeling more and more comfortable explicitly criticizing the way that show ended and making sure everyone knows that it's not the way he thought it would end. What do you think mm-hmm. about this analysis? Yeah, I mean, I've heard that Martin wanted 10, uh, 10 seasons for that show. And yeah, mm-hmm. they wouldn't give it to him. Uh, boy, uh, under under that creative team, though, I'm not sure that would have changed much. Like it, it wasn't necessarily that it was rushed. Yes, it was. It felt rushed. Um, with some of the the Danny and John stuff there, but like, does another two seasons fix the problems that we saw? I I can't imagine that it would, it, especially with creators who are not wanting to do the thing that they're being tasked with, that would, that would make it even worse perhaps. Um, well, and then with the, with the foreknowledge of actual history, um, you know, hindsight, you could have given Martin six more seasons and he wouldn't have finished another goddamn book. Oh yeah. Yeah. I and mean, I think for, you know, like this, this is all from Martin's perspective, but I think from the, if I'm putting on my double D empathy hat, which I'm loath to do, I think, and I've, I've said this a bunch of times. I think it's, they personally felt betrayed by George for not finishing the books because they didn't sure. want to write fan fiction for Game of Thrones. I don't think it particularly interested them. I think they were exhausted going into those later seasons. And now they have to fucking finish this thing. That's a global phenomenon. Yeah. And George gets to and essentially do other projects and lounging by the pool. Yeah, it's not. And, and, and if they totally crush it. Cool. Martin's going to get a lot of the credit and if they fuck it up, Martin can be like, well, it's not the way my book's going to go. And it's, right. it's you know, super and then he duper can die before he ever writes them. <laughs> and it will never. So know. Yeah. like they're kind of damned that they do damned that they don't damned that they do anything. So like, I think they handled it badly, but also, you know, I can put, you know, like I can put an empathy hat on and, and kind of understand from their perspective. It's just, it, it, honestly, it's the, I feel like it's the fans that got, the worst of everything because uh-huh. both all the other people are rich and famous 
and still a hot commodity on creative markets. And we are, you know, trying to get excited for a, a season of House of the Dragon. So hopefully that'll that'll work out for us. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, Bar from Montreal is a related question. It says at the beginning of the uh, season one, episode one, Hot D Feedback podcast, you talked about a redo of the Game of Thrones season seven and eight. What do you think about fixing the Game of Thrones via the Jon Snow sequel? A maester could interview Jon Snow to document the history, and Jon could then tell the corrected story Princess Bride style. Um, I don't think this works with narrative that we actually see. Like, you can do that with fire and blood stuff because it's all hearsay and secondhand accounts. But like they showed us what happened. They showed it to us. I don't think you can just have a character say, nah, actually that stuff you saw, it never actually happened. What? I think you could. I think you put a Kit Harrington in uh, aged up makeup and he's the grizzled Lord Commander writing down the history for the official, you know, the official thing and like him and, and, and they kind of. Uh-huh. And then I'm not saying they redo this episode, but like maybe the maester, like you'll the you, you'll see present day Kit Harrington doing Jon Snow things. And it'll be like not a literal record scratch, but like, you know, flashback to old John being like, whoa, 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 what? That's not. No. Who was on the throne? <laughs> Bran? No, fucking Bran was up. He stayed in the Weirwood Network. No, that's a, I, 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 I think it's a yeah, weird. I think tone. you could film that and I think you could release that. That, the, that's tone. the tone is a problem I, it's the tone a huge is a problem. problem huge i yeah it's i don't think there's any way to successfully do that hmm. but that's just my feeling I, on it yeah i think the other way you could approach it is you don't do that framing you just kind of retcon based on what Jon Snow's doing now and the realm like you know just show that Bran's not the king and and people would be maybe confused by that but like I in this age of media sophistication you just you know in advance you just let people know like hey we are intentionally retconning the end of Game of Thrones to steer it more we're not going to re- reshoot or nothing but we are bending its arc back towards maybe George's original you know wishes and maybe he's got a couple more books down and you know, they, 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 they're doing something with this intentional linking of Hot D and GOT and the Jon Snow project, the JSP. Uh, I just don't I don't know what because like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm baffled on how they roll that back. Um, or maybe I, I, they go ahead. I, I really feel like reshooting those rewriting those, you know, if Martin ever gets his books done 
uh, shit, by then it's going to be too late. I mean, none of these kids are going to be the even close to the same age that they were. No, you'd um, have to recast a lot, I think. Yeah, and I, recasting the final two seasons of a show seems rough after they've already been shot and released. Um, yeah. But I don't know. I think it'd be a super audacious and, and unprecedented move. And I think it would gather a lot of attention and they'd have to nail it. Like if they don't they, nail it, it would thing. be just this huge colossal mythical level flop if you redo uh, it and it <laughs> right. sucks and it's a completely different and novel way oh my god it, it yeah it'd be devastating but if they pulled <laughs> it off it, they the oh. event like the event that they could sell here like never in the history and maybe this is not true but in certainly in my tv viewing history never has this been done before come see this spectacle it's going to be bigger and grander and it's also going to be a once in a lifetime opportunity to see this. Uh, it, that's I, yeah. I think that would be hugely successful for them uh, as long as it actually went well. Yeah. Yeah. And there might be other ways to do it too, but uh, I, it, it seems like if they are going to go forward, it is going to be, it, it's going to have to deviate a little bit unless, unless uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll have to see, we'll have to see more about this John Snow project. I don't know. Uh, Old Griswold says, how much do you think Viserys's weak rulership was caused by his relationship and succession to Jaehaerys the Conciliator? Uh, or Conciliator? Conciliator? I forget how to pronounce that. The guy who reconciles things. Um, hmm. He had many names, the old king. I believe this week Viserys stated that he could do whatever it, or he would do whatever it took to avoid a war. Uh, and it made me wonder whether he's trying to continue a time of peace and prosperity, but doesn't actually know how to play the game. Maybe he needs a Queen of Thorns, be a dragon pep type pep talk. What do you think? Is Viserys just trying to keep the keep the good times rolling? And yeah, or is I mean, he just definitely. incapable of doing anything but being a peacetime king? Uh, I mean, you know, if you believe the words out of his mouth and yeah one of his goals is to prevent war and man shouldn't that be the goal of all leaders to prevent war uh so i i think that's what a good king does i will say it probably gets a lot harder the longer you go without war like we saw at the tourney right you got a bunch of knights out there who are like yeah look king i i know you don't want a war and everything but i gotta kill somebody i gotta get out there and make my name i gotta right get out there and 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 uh satiate my bloodlust because that's the kind of dude I am uh, and, and you know J. J. Harris does his thing for X number of years I have no long, no idea how long he was on the throne uh, during peacetime but the second king who comes along and is like yeah my whole reign is going to be peace too probably has a harder go of it because people you know people get excited about peace when there's been a war for a long time right and they're like sure. okay Thank goodness that horrible section of our history is over. But then a lot of those people also get a little antsy when there's too much peace on the table for too long. Especially when you're talking the lords and the the ladies and, exactly. and not, not so much the small talk or the small talk, the small folk. Oh, yeah. They, they'd prefer peace. Moving on to Russell says, do you think as much as Damon is playing a dangerous game, the auto himself purposely wants to play on that something like a rattlesnake handler? Otto offers to go, and I sense that he wants Damon to snap. Clear evidence of such is the way he speaks to Damon straight away, clearly with no respect and borderline enticing him. 
Perhaps Otto doesn't want a uh, straight up carnage. That means his own death, perhaps provoking Damon. Maybe Otto wants Damon to keep the egg so Otto can go back to King's Landing and be like, I fucking told you about this guy. Mm. What's your take on uh, or do you have you any further reflections on Otto v. Damon? I think Otto just hates Damon. And I, I don't I don't that's know if that's the thing I think people need to keep in mind that this is a two way grudge and beef. And Otto uh-huh. is a schemer, but he's not maybe as good as Littlefinger at suffering fools and slings. So, yeah. Do you believe that Otto can get carried away with his emotions when he gets his blood up? Uh, you know, I see a guy in in what we've been shown so far who is struggling a little bit with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's not all calculated with him. Whereas yeah. with Littlefinger, I think it was, but right. He, no, I think he's a little more of a slave to that. Yeah, it is. I, cause I, I just, I mean, you can definitely read it that way, but I, I, I got to stress that like Otto doesn't have anything secured and locked up at this point. If Damon slashes, cuts his head off and starts a war, He's got nothing, you know, Alicent is not even betrothed, much less with an heir, possible potential heir in her belly. Like, that's what you like from Otto's perspective. He needs Alicent to get married to the king. He needs Alicent to have a male heir. Mm-hmm. If none of those things happen, then he's kind of got like this is all for naught. So I don't think he goes here to try to provoke Damon more than is necessary. I just think that he just really fucking hates this guy and has open contempt for him. And it's the vibe I'm getting. Yeah. 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 Although but. that little nod he gives at Corliss when the marriage is announced or that that that's a weird one to me. That seems like an unforced error. Yeah. Which might be more grist for the he's just an emotional guy kind of mill. That's what, you know? yeah, kind of where that was taking me. Yeah. Like Littlefinger wouldn't be caught dead doing this shit. But then again, no. this guy's not Littlefinger. He's got a little bit of the nobility, the wounded nobility of an Ed Stark, Ned Stark. He's got, mm. you know, he is a knight. This episode reminds me. It's like he has got, you know, he's a Sir Hightower uh, or Sir Otto, uh, among other things. And he wears he's got a he's got a suit of mail and he's got a sharp sword. And, he, you know, his 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 he's still got two balls that clank. He thinks between his legs, so he's he can be as wounded as any as any man, maybe more than most being a second son, because like I said, the big theme is like all of this vial that Damon has towards Otto reflects a little bit back on him, because when he's talking about Otto being a second son and being a conniving, you know, cunt and wanting to be power hungry, he's talking about himself too. never forget that. Mm hmm. Scott R says, Oye, in the instant take, you were having trouble placing Damon's mistress, Masseria's accent, but I think it's obvious where she's from. The belt. Every time ah. she speak, me pinsa, yeah, belt a load down with Wester Wallace. That's okay. <laughs> All jokes aside, I can't hear it now. It makes me mad. Sanoya Mizuno wasn't cast in season seven or nine, seven through nine of the expanse. Oh, yeah. Miss Mizuno would be a pretty fucking good belter. Mm hmm. To be honest, uh, that would yeah. be cool. Yeah, and also, also, guys, like it's it's um, you know, there's um, this series ended strongly, but it was unfinished and kind of a weird uh, monkey's paw version of Game of Thrones. The Expanse. If you like Game of Thrones, I think you really will like The Expanse because it's essentially Game of Thrones in space. They even have a sad, sorrowful space Jon Snow mm-hmm. who always tries to do the right thing and get shit on for it. 
So uh, it's commonly said you got to give it the first four episodes to kind of really get what it's about. But if you're a big science fiction fantasy nerd and you haven't tucked into the expanse, oh boy, once Hot D wraps up, check it out uh, over on Amazon, especially if you're going to be given the Rings of Power uh, tonight, a look, a look and a gander anyway, which, by the way, Rings of Power, two episodes tonight. We'll have full coverage out tomorrow and a big old lore cast out Monday. We're it's going to be it's going to be double, double, double dueling fantasy series from here on out. Moving on, Amy, as I've noticed in Hot D, only the Targaryens are using the High Valerian language. I'm wondering, does anyone else besides the family understand the tongue? Is Rhaenyra and Daemon doing this to have secret conversations? Um, so, like, I'm going to say something and then let you think, give your analysis, which is Valerian is not a secret language. Like, it's we, we, there's tons of physical documentation. It was it's not a dead language. It's still spoken by the Targaryens. Um, the maesters, you know, uh, probably have people that are specializing in it and can speak it fluently. Uh, you still have a, a, a large part of the continent. And still speaks a form of Valerian or re- related languages. It's kind of like, again, old Valeria is like Rome. So Valerian is kind of like, you know, the, the, the mother of probably a lot of the what you call romance languages of Essos. Now. That still doesn't. I don't. So, so knowing that, I. What do you think about Rhaenyra and Damon using it to have like a secret conversation around the Red Keep and whatnot? Uh, it doesn't. I guess it doesn't seem likely then. Yeah. I well, but I. I think that like even though I say that, it's like it's still probably uncommon. You know, like I doubt Otto Hightower speaks it. I doubt the hmm. certainly when you get down to like household guard and staff and things like that, certainly they're not going to know anything more than the common tongue. So it's still probably, you know, um, it's, it's kind of like this. It's like uh, all of us could possess a secret power of speaking in a secret language. Uh, we could learn Spanish. We could learn American Sign Language. And we would be uh, that would improve our lives drastically. Most of us don't, you know. True. Uh, wouldn't it be cool to be able to have a conversation with a loved one from across a crowded, noisy room? Learn American Sign Language. We can do that, but we don't. So I, I still think it's both. It's it's supposed to show that these, especially um, Rhaenyra and Damon, are like more Targaryen than thou, and implying a collective because it's not just that. The show is layering on like you guys are so the same. You guys are so the same. You guys are just like each other. Like they're they're, they're definitely setting up a bond there, and I think this is just. Uh, a cool way plus it sounds i just think the valerian sounds really cool yeah it does when they're speaking it like apparently fluently uh christine says i love you guys but you're killing me with your insane name pronunciations most because uh your pronunciations turns the names into anuses mm-hmm. rainus is rainice just like eris is not air is aries not eris and dana danis is danese and not danis Normally not this nitpicky, but I feel compelled to a- email because you were calling everyone with so much uglier than true pronunciations per germ and the showrunners in the behind the scenes. Explain to First me why all, Viserys is Viserys and Rhaenys is Rhaenys. I and that's Rhaenys. And also, I'm pretty sure Eris was Eris until this, like, yes. Why is Daenerys not pronounced Daenerys? Mm-hmm. Is the official Valerian pronunciation guide just to say pronounce niece as nus unless it would make it sound like anus and then mm-hmm. change it to niece and hope nobody like this. 
This feels like post hoc bullshit because Gurm is just guarding his way into a whole family tree of Targaryen butthole names. <laughs> and he now comes in and out. People are pronouncing it with entirely consistent and, and approachable ways. And he's like, oh, I don't like I don't like having all this stuff. You know, I'm not I'm not I'm well, not going to try to change the rules and not having it. I think what it really comes down to and what might surprise people to know is that the actual Valerian pronunciation of the butthole is anise. so yeah they're actually leaning in their high valerian Uh buttholes here uh look anus targaryen now tomorrow (laughs) always my real last name rhymes with jerk off i have no fucking sympathy with these butthole people you name your kids anus i'm gonna call them anus Uh rainus anus daenerys i'm gonna keep it call them yeah that's right i'm one and, and and i get it I get it. If you are a hardliner about this Rainice Rainus stuff, you you might want to bail. There's a half a hundred other podcasts out there for you. Uh, but deep down, deep mm-hmm. down, I think you know we're right, and you like the Rainus. You love the Rainus. You're all about that <laughs> Rainus, and you're going to stick around the Hot D podcast for that <laughs> that that Rainus that 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 Rainus flair, that Rainus verb, that vibe. But anyway, yeah, I'll never, I'll never, never, never pronounce it correctly if that's what pronouncing it correctly is. Until until start people start saying uh, Daenerys, you know, right, like until right. they start getting that that NYS consistently across everything, and not just when it starts sounding buttholey. <sighs> Nate says you were discussing the statue seen in this episode as being either the mother or the maiden overlooking the scene in the set, but I had a slightly different take. I thought the shot felt willfully out of focus and I was getting very ominous vibes from the dark and shadowy nature. And my immediate thought was they're invoking the stranger as a portent of immediate death uh, or imminent death. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And thanks again for making me feel like I'm not the only nerd in the world. Um, stranger often depicted as like a shrouded hooded figure, uh, sometimes with a skull face, sometimes with very uh, distinct and shadowy features. Uh, it represents death and the unknown. I didn't get that from that statue. I thought this was a dimly lit cathedral, and it kind of looked shadowy by nature. I, I but, but it was kind of hooded and cloaked, so maybe. I still think my take on the Mother and Maiden are probably more so than the Stranger, but hmm. if you guys are getting Stranger Danger, then this being House of Dragons, you're probably not wrong. You know, There's probably going to be imminent death. Oh, yeah. Uh, now, if the girls start peeling oranges in that set, watch out. Mm-hmm. But uh, we'll see. Lisbeth says, I have uh, uh, some questions on episode two. I understand the king needs to rewed and attempt to have another heir. The fact that they're at risk both due to the lack of heirs. But what about this option? During the tournament, it seems Corliss has a son and a daughter. Uh, son seemed older, perhaps Rhaenyra's age, dare I say. Uh, if that's in fact the case, why can't Rhaenyra be married to him, keeping that strong bond of Valerian and Targaryen blood and work on producing her own heirs for when her time comes and goes? Perhaps this question is premature and may in fact come to fruition in future episodes, but I'm confused as why they are pushing a 12-year-old who won't bed for two years anyway to be married when the princess seems to be of age for that time to marry and bear children. I mean, I get it. Something happens to Rhaenyra. There goes the line. But Rhaenyra could have produced an heir quicker than waiting for Lena to come of age. I just don't understand why that is the first or only option. Hmm. Um, do you have any thought? Because I'm going to I'm going to abstain since this is a forward looking question. Oh, no, because I don't know enough about succession to to tell you. 
uh, how that works. I assume that would work out. Yeah, I feel like just walking it through, I might accidentally walking through the scenarios. I might accidentally, you know, give a spoiler. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to. I think there were many people that saw, you know, like it seemed like there's more possibilities than just Allison or Lena or, you know, like I said, the, her, the, the older brother you're talking to, the Valerian uh, kid is uh, Lane, Lanor, not Lena, Lanor. Um, it seemed like, yeah, you could get if, if what you wanted was heirs or was quicker ways to get about it. But also this might. Yeah maybe this is another thing. The fact that they're not considering marrying uh, Rhaenyra, who's very close to being that age anyway. Um, maybe this is another way the show is telling you that no one, not even Viserys is taking her airship seriously, that it was strictly mm. just a way to provoke uh, Damon. Yeah. Boy. I don't know. I don't know. It's a real good question because it does seem like it would work out pretty well. Jack has another question a related. Hey, guys, love the show. I was just wondering if you had knowledge of any real or Game of Thrones trivia as to why the king wouldn't marry his daughter. I know it's disgusting, but surely equal to a uh, sister, uh, brother, sister marriage. And I was curious about your opinion on this. Well, for one, she's she's already the heir, right? I mean, what would yeah. what would that solve? I guess is the question. Well, he could start pumping out heirs, you know, like in what what could be what could be more of an heir than the well, you do that with Allison, too. And it's not his daughter. So sure. But I, I mean, know, like you, you've got like you got you like a really yeah, bloodline. You got, I guess. That's that's why. So it's not unheard of in Targaryen history to do this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I will say that here's the thing. Brother and sister, parent-child incest is seen as an abomination by all major faiths of Westeros. Old gods and the new both said, gross, icky, what the fuck are you doing? Don't do that shit, okay? Um, the faith tolerated it for Aegon marrying both of his sisters, which polygamy also something that the gods are not too hot on. Uh, because he kicked all their asses in and he had dragons and the high septons like I didn't get my sept burnt down to the torch. So, I mean, the books don't explicitly say that, but there was this kind of like uneasy alliance between the faith and the Targaryens. In fact, it didn't last very long before the faith started bucking it, because in 41 AC, that's just 41 years after Aegon took over King Anus. Good please, King please, Anus. Please, Anus. <laughs> uh, tried to marry his son to his daughter, and the whole faith rose up in revolt over how gross they thought it was, which led to the hmm. first, fa uh, the first uh, faith militant uprising, oh, which boy. was later reprised by Jonathan Price and the High Sparrow, mm -hmm. uh, that plagued his entire reign all down to Magor the Cruel, who put it down with extreme violence because, you know, he's called the Cruel not for nothing. It was actually old King Jaehaerys coming after Magor, who also married his sister, uh, that worked out a deal with the Faith of the Seven. They call it the Doctrine of Exceptionalism. This is something Anthony and I wrote in Gods of Thrones. But its tenet was simple. The Faith of the Seven had been born in Andalos of old, where the laws were laid down by the Seven in their holy text that decreed the incest was an abomination. But the Targaryens are not like men, because they ride dragons, uh... They do not have their roots in Old Andalus, but in Valeria, where they had different laws and traditions uh, holding sway, and that they could continue wedding brother to sister, the Valerians had always had done as the gods had made them this way, for it is not for men to judge what God, what the gods decide to do. 
Um, you'll note that that there's no father daughter exception. So this would still be, hmm. I think that's is kind of like where they draw the line. And as, so when the Targaryens first came over, I think they were faith of the seven in name only like secretly. If they prayed to any gods, it was their old Valerian gods, uh, their own dragon worship and magic and all their own pantheon. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but as, they culturally became entwined with Westeros. You saw them getting more and more open uh, to to where you got down to Baylor the Blessed, where he was essentially just like all about it. You know, he he was he was just consumed with the faith, and uh, that was the most important thing in his life. So, and that's hmm. 170 years AC approximately. So you get from you know proud Targaryens riding their dragons and not trucking with no faith at a seven, not letting them to bully them around about who they marry and which sister they fuck. And to, you know, Baylor to blessed where he's like, you know, spending all the money, building a big, great sept and, and, uh, praying till his knees are red and all that kind of stuff. So Luke says, after watching the second episode a few times, I've come to believe that Viserys would have married Lena if Rhaenyra hadn't went to Dragonstone. By putting her life in danger, she made uh, the fact that she was the king's only heir that much more prevalent. With Alicent, he can start producing heirs right away, but with Lena, he'd have to wait a few more years. I feel Viserys' choice to marry Alicent was less about his feeling for her and more about securing the dynasty right now. Uh, got a, a lot of this of type of feedback. Yeah, I think. I, 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 it, and it does seem like a plain reading of the episode shows mm-hmm. that more than a little of, uh, of of him coming around to a second marriage was you are my only heir. We are vulnerable. I have to fix this. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the only reason he got married or, you know, declared that he's going to be married uh, in this episode at all. Otherwise I think he was still in, uh, you know, a period of, of grieving for his, yeah. his for Emma. I just don't know why it's Allison. I, that's the one thing that's like, I, <laughs> I I don't know that even another conversation would fix it because I think the show wants me to think that well, there's two possibilities. I guess Viserys just was falling in love with Alicent and I don't think they did mm-hmm. a good job of telling that, like him being inflamed with love for her or Otto just like had a hell of a sales speech. Because, well, I think there are two factors. One yeah. is the ick factor of marrying a 12-year-old, right? Um, who doesn't actually solve the problem of the air stuff not immediately, immediately. No. right no uh yeah so you're gonna have to wait two years for that and that's a risky two years um allison does solve that immediately and they do have a bond they're they're bonding over history and then their conversations that they're having so i i think it's a twofold thing there um and to me that adds up to just enough to have this crazy move and then i i'm hoping that there will be a scene in the next episode that's like justifying this to some of his counsel because they've all said, no, Lena is the way to go. But I didn't feel like any of them ever addressed the problem of the two year gap there that they're going to have with the heirs. It doesn't solve it. Yeah, that you're right. He says, Hey guys, I did this because we need an heir tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Lena's not going to give it to us. So, Mm -hmm just a yeah. conversation with his small council could tell me enough to, to bridge that gap. I got to say, the more I've thought about it this morning, the more I've thought about like, yeah, I, I, I wonder if it's a problem for the show to not even consider the fact that you could have married one of the Valerians to rain Rhaenyra. 
Now, maybe Rhaenyra's yeah, not crazy maybe. about that because I can't imagine her oh, being sure. thrilled with being told to marry anybody. No, no, no. But that's another th- source of strife and stuff that they can explore on the show. Like, I is she more okay with that than her best friend marrying her dad? Yeah, <laughs> because that's not great either. Yeah, and it, you know, it also dovetailed with the fact that, like, you know, it seems like by the end of this episode, she'd come around on half, you know, kings and queens having to do their duty through the realm. And that's more did, important yeah. than matters of love and relationships and all that kind of stuff. So, like, you could kind of hoist her on her own petard. She's a 15 mm-hmm. year old girl that I don't know that'll work 100% of the time. But, uh, right. you know, it's, it's something I, I do. I, I, Mm. I kind of come back around on the Tuesday show, but now the feedback, it's like, yeah, I do feel like it was very rushed. This decision to, you know, like why, why was it Allison? Because like you obviously didn't need to King a queen right that minute. Cause it's been six months since they've been in your ear. So mm-hmm. like, what's another, like, okay. It's like, if we're going to turn down Corliss, should we not sit with a small council and like, okay, where, who are all the eligible ladies of the land? What's the best match? What gives me the best political yeah. connections? What I'm marrying the hand like that feels. And, and I, yeah, I would like to see what Otto did to seal that deal because it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense on, or there's, it doesn't, it's not that it doesn't make sense. It's just, there's a little bit of like some holes here. Cause it seemed like there was better matches and the fact that they weren't considered, you know, it's yeah, like I'm Corliss. almost hoping for some petitioning to change his mind next episode. Um, yeah, but I, I'm not sure we're going to get that. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's like that lords could be pissed that they weren't even considered. Like, sure. I didn't. My yeah. daughter didn't make the short list. Fuck you. But you know, that could be part of the story they're telling us. Viserys is not maybe as good at maintaining what his father had as his father was. Or mm-hmm. I'm sorry, grandfather. Capo says, one thing I was considering or wondering if Damon is the head of the city watch, which he had just rebuilt in the first episode. Correct me if I'm wrong. Now in episode two, he's moved to Dragonstone with said city watch. Who's watching the city when he was sent away at the end of episode one and six months later, episode two, he's somewhere else named head of the city watch and new officers hired. Maybe I missed it. Um, I assumed that he didn't take the entire city watch with him. Right. He just took some of them, but I don't yeah. know that for a fact. Didn't they say he has it's uh, his force is 3000 strong. That would be a crazy garrison force for Dragonstone. Yeah. You know, so like, I think you're right. I think he probably took a 10th of that, maybe 300 as honor guard and as, as staff. Um, and as a show, you know, like, so you can't just come and like knock me in the head when I'm sleeping. Uh, you'd mm-hmm. have to mount a serious offense or bring a dragon or something. But yeah, I, I think you're supposed to get the idea that uh, there's still a lot of people keeping the peace of King's Landing. Cause that's the other thing. It's like, also if you want to make a room on the a move on the throne, why the fuck would you take your army out of King's Landing? Sure. You want them inside the walls. You know, it's a lot more effective mm-hmm. if you're trying to do a coup. So I, yeah, I think, I, I think he just didn't bring the whole, the whole squad. Norm says, I don't have a map of Westeros, but the hand Otto and his troops made it to Dragonstone awfully fast. I'm uh, almost as fast as that blonde princess on a dragon, uh, Rhaenyra. And the Master of Ships meets up with Damon awfully fast. Is House of the Dragon just ignoring long travel and going straight to the jetpacks of later seasons of Game of Thrones? Relax, Mm. Norm. If you look at a map, you'll find that both Driftmark and Dragonstone are islands in the Blackwater Bay. And the mouth of the Blackwater Bay is King's Landing. I doubt it's even an hour sail away. 
Um, and right. and Dragonstone is like literally a, sk- a rock skip away from Driftmark. Uh, Driftmark is closer to the mainland than Dragonstone, but not by much. Um, so yeah, it's no worries about jetpacking all you could easily leave in the middle of the night and make dragonstone by first light and then of course Rhaenyra can just is that a five minute flight is that like a right. flying from indianapolis chicago like the uh-huh. the dragon doesn't even have a chance to get a, above the cloud layer it's just like a a ballistic trajectory yep john says i was wondering with a major time jump coming are you guys concerned with losing certain characters specifically millie alcock as Rhaenyra? Mm-hmm. a little bit i like her yeah, we got some other feedback. One person likened it to like, what if you lost uh, Maisie Williams as Arya halfway through season one? Um, well, I mean, if it was replaced by a badass late 20s version of Arya doing cool faceless man, faceless woman stuff, maybe we wouldn't complain, right? Sure. Yeah, it all kind of hinges on uh, what uh, what's her name is going to do who's replacing her Emma Darcy. Yeah. That's the thing is, is she going to be good? Is she going to be, I mean, the comparison is going to be there for all Uh these young, uh, actors going to older, more experienced actors. I think so. I think they'll be fine. Um, but it's a risk. And this is another, I think people are borrowing trouble by worrying about something that hasn't yet come to pass. But yeah, I mean, I think, uh, Millie has stolen the show. In, in a lot of ways and she's yeah. the clear primary protagonist at this point so recasting her and moving her on is 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 a little worrisome but uh yeah i'll miss her we'll when she's gone the, but, you know it's it's all up to what the replacements do with those ms drcy does mm-hmm. uh maria v so something I noticed about the hot D in episode one and two is that it doesn't seem like western society has changed much from the time of the original game of thrones series their buildings, ships, books, clothing, even modes of communication, ravens, virtually unchanged. Are we suspend belief and assume that there has been no major technological breakthroughs in almost two centuries? Do you think this is a stylistic choice by the showrunners to ensure the new show is reminiscent of the old? Or perhaps a rapid pace of innovation in the last hundred years of a current world has warped my perception yes. of human advancement? A hundred percent. What do you that's think? True. Yeah, then yeah, that latter thing is true. Like you look at the 1400s and you look at the 1600s in our history there is not much development there you go back further than that there's even less so like yes we are just in a crazy pace of change the industrial revolution changed everything uh right down to the pace of change and we're just stuck in that in that loop it's something that's like dan carlin's often said that he would take the armies uh the roman legions under julius caesar straight up against any army up until the mid 19th century and expect them to win. Right. That's fucking yeah, insane. The beginning of world war one, but and where war technology was then. And it's well, even almost identical to this stuff. People were on horses going, leading charges in world war one, starting a world war one. They had lancers. Yeah. Um, right? with dudes in the fucking, you know, breast, weird breastplates with the feathered helmets and all that stuff. And, and then, by the end of it, yeah. they had, they had, artillery that could shoot miles and miles accurately uh, yeah yeah within and, and hit within feet it's crazy and it's like it's even getting because like i don't i think america in 2022 could trounce america from the vietnam war 
you know, oh, yeah, just yeah. GPS and drone technology and uh-huh. the improvements in satellite technology. It's like you, you go from a, a, an army that for two thousand, almost two thousand years could whip all cumbers because of their. Mm-hmm. Yes, their technological sophistication, but mostly because of the logistics and their their um, you know the secret sauce they had of of like the you know the way their or- army is organized, the their training, tactics, their yep. their training, the fact that they had a professional army when most you know armies a day were <laughs> were conscripts. Mm-hmm. Um, they they just you, you have an army that for two thousand years could whip all comers, and then you've got armies that. 20 years down the line in the last century or two would be trounced by an enemy 20 years later. So, yeah. and, and you see like, you know, like it's kind of crazy, but like the age of sail lasted a hell of a long time, mm-hmm. you know, because until we had internal combustion, wind was kind of like King. So like you see a lot of this, what you call technological stasis and um, Westeros might have a better excuse than than most because every few generations a brutal winter comes and kills like 50 percent of the population um there's entire like the most and 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 also the most their their rome was completely wiped out off the map at the height of its power by some magical cataclysm so there's a lot of reasons why but like even even discounting all that like up until very recent um the 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 pace of human technological development has been pretty glacial you know Mm -hmm. uh dan m from chicago says i have an episode one question i don't think has been discussed yet it's about one quote from viserys to rainier that really struck with me without them we're just like everyone else the idea we control the dragons is an illusion what up until now, the Game of Thrones show has led us to believe that anyone with Targaryen blood had some telepathic type connection with the dragons. From everything about Daenerys to John of Dragonstone, even that scene of Tyrion pulling a hand maneuver a la Chris Pratt from Jurassic World, which at the time had everyone convinced Tyrion was going to be some sort of secret Targaryen. This offhanded comment in House of the Dragons seems like it would change all that and make the dragons more like unruly nuclear weapons that can go off at any time, but show has only shown us complete compliant dragons all the time. The real reason I care is because Drogon spared Jon Snow his life because of his Targaryen blood. Apparently Drogon should have totally gobbled him up right then and there, but I think it's now verified that Drogon only let Jon live for his future spinoff show and not his bloodline. <laughs> um, yeah, it's tough to, to put too much credence into what happened in the final two seasons of that show, but yeah, and I think that um, the other thing is like something something that my my buddy Maester Anthony has said that he calls Viserys dragon dubious. He, for whatever reason, is more cautious and fearful around dragons than your average Targaryen. Like he blames uh, the Doom of Valerian on dragons. He seems mm-hmm. to be loath to use them. Unleashes dragon riders. He's very nervous about over relying on that power. Um, so I wouldn't take too much of what he says as God. That's just his opinion, man. Uh, yeah, I was feeling like it was, it was, I don't know when I think of the Targaryens and dragons, I think of a relationship. I I don't think of a master slave relationship. I think of a, of a cooperative, uh, relationship a symbiosis kind of thing where like like a horse and rider. I would never say like, you know, you think about your best friend, right? And it's like, mm-hmm. I would never say I control them, 
but clearly like we we enjoy a lot of the same things uh you could potentially say that like you'd have some sway over the decisions they might make you could ask them to do things for you and they'd almost certainly comply um and, and happily in most cases that's the kind of vibe i get like the dragons are the targaryen's best friends I mean, you say that, but every day I show up at the, in front of microphone exactly the time you tell me to. I mean, it's like uh, that's true. Am I controlling <laughs> you, or are you doing? I mean, me you, it's a not solid. for nothing. You're the king on the cover of this fucking thing. So, no, like, that's I, true. you know, <laughs> I don't know um, am, I, am I wrong to think that that's like a relationship that they have, a mutual relationship, instead of like the dragons being subservient to them? Yeah, I think it's uh, like uh, any kind of large, dangerous predator. If you're a bear trainer, a, li- t- a tiger, lion trainer, you have to always understand that you kind of rule with the consent of the governed. At any time, if, if you're not feeding and treating these animals right, they could easily overpower and kill you. Um and there's also yeah. there is a there is a bit of a bond what they, they talk about the dragon riders bond and that's why they put the eggs in the cradles and why they try to get the kids with the hatchlings is there is some kind of like, you know, imprinting going on, maybe both ways even, um, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the, the, the mailbag. But um, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't give it up just because Viserys has some ideas about dragons, you know. Sure. Uh, let's move on to Daniel. It says, what do you think the vibes between dragons are? I'd assume that uh, all the Targaryen dragons have grown up alongside each other and would not only be acclimated, but familiar with each other. But in the bridge scene this week, it seemed like the dragons are bristling at one's presence and the way the two strange dogs would size each other up at a park. It surprised me because I would imagine they would be so familiar with each other that there would be no animal antagonism. What was your because honestly, that's a good point. That's not the read I got. I when I meant to talk about this in the podcast, but when I saw um, Caraxes see uh, Syrax, it was more like, oh, hey, it's Syrax. You know, like, uh, you know, not like a puppy bounding. Oh, my God, my best friend. But it's kind of like, oh, yeah, that's 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 my my uh, homeboy dragon. I uh, haven't seen him in six months or so. haven't been at the dragon pit lately. Don't know why. Um, I didn't see it as bristling. But but there again, I think like dragons have resting bitch face big time. <laughs> oh, yeah. All the teeth and the, the scales worst. and the horns like they just uh-huh. kind of look fierce. But I, what, what was your take on that? My take was there was a tension between Rhaenyra and Damon and the dragons. It, I, I don't know if you want to say, you know, psychically understood that on that you know i i I don't know if it goes that far but like you know uh the the idea that like this dragon would protect rhaenyra i think makes sense in that scenario uh i think it can sense the danger that's the the potential danger that's here the stress Um, and anxiety from its owner bleeds yeah, into how and not it necessarily in like a psychic link kind of way just yeah, body yeah. language just the same way your dog vibe. can pick up when you're like chill with somebody i mean not all uh-huh. dogs some dogs are stupid some dogs are more but like in general sure. if you're going up to a person they've never seen before and you're like cool and excited and chill the dog's probably going to be that way whereas if you are acting fearful and tense and the dog's going to pick up on that and be like it's go mm-hmm. time you know so i i think you're probably right um i don't think the dragons are natural enemies you know, it's not like no, they are super territorial. Like I mean, you can keep them all in a pit together and they seem to roost together. Um, Danny's 
because they were, I guess, all brother sister dragons. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, to be honest, we just don't fucking know a lot about dragons still because, you know, this is a kind of old Valerian secrets that only one minor dragon lord family survived. And, you know, they're going to promptly lose all their dragons within two centuries of their rule. So. Yeah, we we are getting a lot of firsthand knowledge. Like this is the first time we've seen dragons with proper saddles. You know, Danny was all just bareback mm-hmm. and Drogon. So we are learning a lot, a lot about about dragons uh, in the show. Maria says, my husband sent me an article that talks about the dragon egg toss that happened between Damon and Rhaenyras at the end of Dragonstone. It's a Vox article. He said the scene looked play, fake and plain silly with how he was tossing the egg around. I remember watching and thinking it was weird, but didn't give it a second thought until I read this article. Rewatching the scene, it makes me wonder how heavy the, our, the eggs are supposed to be. I always assumed they were heavy, but the way D tosses it like a basketball makes me think that maybe it's not the weight I've always assumed it to be. Do the books describe eggs in more detail? Are they heavy, light, hard, or soft? Is it more like a bird egg or a reptile egg? Um, so I read this article, and one of the things they pointed out is like the largest egg that we have is an ostrich egg. It weighs about three pounds, which is a lot, but it's not like if you threw that at Millie Alcock, she would like fall over catching it, right? Right. Um, and the books, I thought there would be more information. The books go into great detail about what shade they are and what the scales look like. Um but they don't actually say hardly anything about how heavy they are, how they feel. Danny in one early chapters mentions the eggs of feeling warm, but she's the only one that can feel that warmth. So maybe mm. it's in her head. Maybe it's a Targaryen mm-hmm. thing. Um, a lot of the eggs in Danny's day were fossilized. Uh, they said they were fossilized. So maybe they were heavier than your average dragon egg. I, I, I didn't think it looked fake. And I thought it was definitely showing how devil may care Damon has towards the whole thing. Cause like, yeah, oh, if yeah. Rhaenyra drops that it's probably war, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? You know, but uh, he trusted her. She's a Targaryen. Um, Matt says, it seems like Damon's team only has one dragon, though. Admittedly, he's very big. Am I supposed to assume that the crown has many more? Do you need Targaryen blood to ride a dragon? If so, who are the dragon riders or is all this mildly interesting? You know what, Matt? A lot of people have requested a breakdown of who has what dragons, and I I can't really give that to you for obvious reasons. Um, I mean, that information is just a book read or a wiki search away if you really want it, but you're going to get massive spoilers. Uh, But I will say there's many, many more dragons in the world. There's more Mm -hmm. than three, like in Game of Thrones, less than 50. There are dragon riders. Targaryens certainly believe that you need Targaryen blood to ride a dragon. We will see if that is true. Um, and again, I keep saying we're going to learn a lot about dragons this this series. A lot about dragons, their capabilities, stuff like that. Related question. Billy says, why hasn't Viserys got himself another dragon? Everyone is worried about him getting another wife six months after his wife dies, but there's no need to get another dragon, the symbol of your family's power. So mm. I, I did some research into this and apparently there's not dragons can have many writers in their lifetime because they live for hundreds and hundreds of years, but there's not even one canon instance of a dragon writer taking another dragon. If for whatever reason they lose one, oh, there's wow. a few that think about it and they don't that from their perspective, it, it's not like, well, I'd like to take another dragon, but oh, that's clearly impossible. But I think it's telling that um, that doesn't usually happen. And in fact, I, I I couldn't think of one. I did some research. I couldn't find one. If there is, it's it's got to be exceedingly rare. 
Um, and I think it goes back to that bond. I don't know what it goes, how it's how it is from a dragon's perspective, but from the Targaryen perspective, it seems like it's a big it's a big deal to choose a dragon to let that that dragon to let you climb up on it for you to swing your leg over and to fly it. The serious flu. What has to be said is the biggest and baddest dragon that anyone alive had ever seen. True, Balerion was kind of in his old doddering fuck stage of being a dragon, and Viserys barely kind of got him in the air. Wanted to take the dragon stone, but Balerion got like over the coast and was like, ah, I don't know, boss. And Viserys was like, I ain't gonna push you, and landed, and he died like less than a year later. Um, but he did bond, and like, what else, what other dragon you gonna? You wrote you you know you fucking get in a Dodge Viper and then you get in a Toyota Corolla. What? No. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's tough to go back. Uh, I have questions about Viserys and his relationship with dragons. So if he rode Balerion, right? That's the big dragon's name. The Black Dread. Black Dread. Uh, that would imply that he didn't have you know, a dragon egg put in his crib, uh, a bond with another dragon. And he somehow made it to his early twenties without having any dragon. How does that happen? Because Rhaenyra already has one in her teenage years. Sure. And she's already putting, you know, a day into this, this former heir's life, a uh, dragon egg in its cradle. So like, well, keep in What's mind that, that the serious um, that, that that like, like they mentioned in the first episode, that's kind of like a Royal bloodline kind of thing. Like not every noble Targaryen got a dragon egg put in their cradle and the uh-huh. was quite a ways down the line of succession. You had sure, to skip sure. Rhaenyra. Uh, I'm sorry, Rhaenys. You had to skip her, uh, her son. You had to skip uh, both of the King's other uh, sons and their families. Cause they died. You know, that's the thing is like, there were several mm-hmm. other heirs that kept dying because King Jaehaerys kept on living. He's so fucking old. Um, so like, I think that that's one of the reasons that he didn't do so until later in life. Um, but it's almost like there's a bunch of contradictory dragon lore written by a bunch of maesters living hundreds of years after a fact with no direct hand knowledge and Targaryens not being forthcoming with their secrets. And nobody really knows what the fuck anything is going on about these dragons. (laughs) So again, I stress, can't stress enough. Lots of information to come, come forward here. Um, Sean wants to know, is there any chance that uh, Lady Melisandre turns up in Hot D? And you might scoff at that, but recall that we found out late in the run of Game of Thrones that Lady Melisandre is approximately 300 years old. Of course, this is all mildly interesting. Jim, do you got any money either way? Does she show up or not? I want to know what she's going to look like. Was was her magic keeping her looking the same as she did when she was young or just like some somebody else? Is it gonna be Carice Van Houten? Right, because uh, the real life Carice Van Houten has aged another several years. Sure, um, still fine looking lady. I'm sure she could pull off uh, a young Melisandre or a younger Melisandre. What do you think? Yeah, I'm, I, I I don't know. I mean, I scorpion bolt to your head is Lady Melisandre showing up? Oh man, she just yes or no? It's a coin flip. Uh, yes. Yes. All right. Season you, Jim. two, episode six. <laughs> wow. That's Lady worth Melisandre a lot of internet up. points when you specify the episode. Damn. Uh-huh. You want to put the runtime in there for the three <laughs> no, no, X no. multiplier? What, okay. what am I crazy? <laughs> Luke says, I want to bring up the scene early on where Viserys has his finger submerged in a bowl of maggots. 
Besides mm-hmm. the symbolism of the maggots, the realm eating away at the dead parts of his finger, Westeros, I was struck by his lack of reaction, these bugs chomping on his finger. Am I wrong in thinking this has to be extremely painful, or are we witnessing the biggest Chad to ever sit the throne? <laughs> it's my understanding that maggots are still used to this day for debriding work of necrotic tissue because they have some... They got the white lab coats and the, the the fancy mirrored eyepiece, and they can precisely know what tissue is dead and what tissue is alive. And if that's true, it probably doesn't feel like anything. Yeah. It probably feels like if you've ever put, uh, you know, uh, maybe a fish nibbling on your on, on, on your feet in, in a pond or a river or something. It, 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 does, it doesn't sound like it's painful, any more painful than it would be like to, to have a callus debrided, you know, mm-hmm. makes sense. I don't really have a kickoff question, and it's going to happen some weeks. But surprise, Maester's Corner. Hey, Anthony, thanks for coming back to the Maester's Corner. It's always my pleasure. Yeah, I, I got so excited to talk Maester to Maester last week that I, I I took it for granted that the Bald Move audience, and I'm sure the hardcore Bald Move audience does know who you are and your qualifications. Um, but everybody else, you're just some dude that also does a podcast. Uh, right. Where yeah. Where did you, you know, where, where, what, what's your deal? What house are you allegiant to? Where did you, when did you forge mm-hmm. your first Maester's cha- uh, link in your chain? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what, who, who is this Maester Anthony? <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so Anthony Ladon is my full name. And I've got a PhD in religious studies. Started working on Dead Sea Scrolls stuff in Vancouver, uh, 98. Then I went off to Durham in England, got my PhD there, working on ancient historiography, uh, Second Temple Judaism. And then I began my real training when I started listening to Bald Move <laughs> about, about seven years ago. And then, uh, then you and I wrote a couple books together. So, um, yeah, yeah Gods of Thrones. And and then, of course, you know, we, I did a, about two years of, of chapter by chapter reviews every week. I would bring on a different kind of Ph.D. guest and we would do like a Danny chapter from a gender studies perspective where we do like a, a John's chapter from a medieval historian perspective. So I am super I've, jealous. I've been of sort of your... deep into this for the I, last I, couple yeah, of years. Yeah, you're you're you you sound like your history is full of mysterious and volume voluminous tomes, mm-hmm, ancient mm-hmm. tomes, and uh, and hardcore Westerosi talk. I'm I'm super jealous of all the uh, expert uh, guest hosts you get. Like you know, oh, people, experts in jousting. You get you got the the guy who wrote the fictitious languages, Valerian, on the show. I forget his name. Well, I, I'm glad you mentioned that. So David Peterson will be coming on Double Dragon in a couple hey, hey. weeks to talk a little bit about their use of Valerian, High Valerian, in the episode, which I've been super impressed with. Not yeah, just- man, they've really there's I I think I there's like already more high valerian spoken on this show than all of game of thrones i think so and it's not just the delivery which is impressive but i feel like they're using it to great effect i feel like yeah in this last episode it was sort of like it, it established this intimacy and the shared history between damon and reyna and then she clicks to the common tongue when she wants everyone to hear her call his bluff yeah i, I it just i just think that that it it's really well done this series for sure. 
So, so that's we'll coming up on David Double Dragon. It. Check out, search Double Dragon uh, in your favorite podcast feed. That's where Anthony will be posting his thoughts during the run of House of the Dragon. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. So we got we got our maesters here. We got a corner. I thought I would go first since uh, I, uh, I I deferred last week. Uh, I keep on, you know, they keep on talking about Targaryen history and when they came and, and Aegon, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I've listened to a bunch of different podcasts from our colleagues, and I keep on hearing people referring to the doom of Valerian, uh, Valeria happening hundreds mm-hmm. of years ago and the Targaryens perhaps coming hundreds of years ago. And I just like, you know, I was always shaky on that because... You know, I, I didn't really know anything about uh, or, or much about Targaryens before they came to uh, Westeros. So I mm-hmm. thought I would do a dive into the prehistory or the pre-Aegon conquering history of the Targaryens. What was going it. on with them pre-conquest. So that's a very murky area. It is very. I, I, I have a yeah. It's it's really ripe to be fleshed out. We'll see if we get the 16th spinoff is about the Dragon Lord era of <laughs> sure, the sure. of the Targaryens. But anyway, it starts there. And in, in uh, old Valeria, the Targaryens were one of the so called Dragon Lords of Valeria. These were the highest caste members of society. They were powerful dragons that actually had dragons that they could claim. And we found out in this latest episode. They had a uh, up to a thousand at their height, according to Viserion or Viserys. Right, um, that's his version of it, right? So, the other thing that uh, I've grown to appreciate in the past few weeks is the Targaryens kind of have prophetic dreams running in their blood. That's right. just as much a part of their fire and blood as as as, as anything else. Uh, you know, we heard firsthand last week about how Aegon foresaw the threat of the White Walkers in a dream, and it's why he sure. one of the many reasons he invaded Westeros. Viserys had a dream of his heir that came true in a kind of horrifying monkey's paw sort of fashion. And in Game of Thrones, Danny had several different prophetic visions and experiences that she, you know, she, right. she went through over the series. But yeah. did you know the whole reason the Targaryens are the last surviving dragon lords of old Valeria was because of this very gift slash curse of prophecy? I think I did know that, but I'd love to hear you tell me. <laughs> so <laughs> this brings us to Danis Targaryen, who just before the year 114 mm-hmm. BC, and this is the uh, before conquering. So this is before the year that uh, Aegon landed in Westeros. Yeah. She had a powerful vision that shook her that revealed that Valeria was going to be destroyed very soon in a cataclysm of fire. And her father... Uh, instead of being like, well, you silly girl, run ahead and run along and fill up my wine. Uh, actually, it took her seriously, heeded her warnings, sold all of his lands, all of his holdings in Valeria, sailed his family and all their possessions to Dragonstone, which at the time was the most Western, most output or outpost yeah. of the Valerian Freehold. Uh, uh the, uh, ca- the the Dragonstone was founded, or at least the castle, around 314 BC. So exactly 200 years before this, I, I guess that, that's a, I, there's there's very little information. I get the idea that her father, Anar, just kind of squatted like he didn't have official permit. He just kind of like, yeah, it's Can an I outpost. I'm here? just taking it over. Yeah, go for it. So this is interesting to me, because if you read this section of A World of Ice and Fire, they set this sentence out about her dream as a one sentence paragraph mm-hmm. as an, as an author, 
The only reason you do that is that you think that that sentence is so significant that it deserves its own paragraph. That's the only mm. reason to do that as an author. So I think that even way back when Martin was writing A World of Ice and Fire with Linda and um, uh, Elio, mm-hmm. I think he thought this is a crucially important moment in this history. It's the dr- it's this it's this girl's dream. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the, I think that, I don't think that this is something that the showrunners just decided to, you know, to capitalize on. I think it sort of was part of Martin's plan a long time ago to build yeah. on this dream. So yeah. anyway, that's my two cents. You're probably right. I think it feels like there's like all kinds of uh, little hooks. And that, it's probably him as a gardener, too. Just kind of like, yeah, we'll still leave a vine going off in this direction. Yeah, and see what happens. That's a good point. Uh, the most important, so they brought all their possessions of Dragonstone. Uh, the most important of those being their five adult dragons, including mm. Balerion, the Black Dread, which is the last surviving dragon that was born in uh, uh, Essos over in uh, Old Valeria. Um, right. The second, you know, Vagar was name checked. Um, she was born on Dragonstone, so she's a younger dragon. Um, I've often wondered why the Targaryens were just kind of allowed to fuck off the Dragonstone and the other Valerians or the Targaryens were allowed to and the other Valerians didn't like pursue them but apparently the other dragon lords the the Targaryens were not the most powerful by far in fact they were very low on the 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 the, the rankings of dragon lords and the other dragon lords kind of haughtily assumed that because there's this all this intense strife and political turmoil in old Valerian, and these competitions between the dragon lords they just assumed that they just it got too much for them and they went right. off to the minor leagues uh, that they considered Westeros. So right. um, they, they just saw that as an act of surrender and cowardice, and they were left to their own devices. Um, now, a lot of people also have wondered at NAS in the last, I think I got a question about this this week, is like, if Valeria had a thousand dragons that Viserys said at its height this episode, how did they not just conquer the entire known world? And the boring answer is essentially the same reason Rome, even though they had decisive advantages and military technology strategy, political organization and logistics did not conquer the entire world. It's like everybody's got a limit and they mm-hmm. were hampered, uh, you know, like they, they get to a size where they can control and administer effectively. And they're also hampered internally by competition and, uh, and corruption. Um, and then of course, at the height of their power, when they'd start thinking about world domination and conquest, they were destroyed in some kind of act of magical volcanic dragon based hubris, that destroyed right. their entire continent that we talked and about. And I last would just week. add just a thousand dragons. I mean, that's that's a that's a fantastical number. But um, it, let's say they they did. They actually had a thousand. That doesn't mean that they had a thousand dragon riders, right? This is true. So, and also, you you got a good point because like there's a lot of internally Martin's work where like Sam's talking about the thousand Lord Commanders and whether you know there's a, a lot of there's a lot of Twitter patient in the original series about how close. John was to being the thousandth Lord. Yeah, these numbers are overblown. Yeah, and Sam's even, as he says, it's like that might just be, you know, a big number. You know, you see this in a lot of ancient text where they're just essentially they have a word for innumerable. Um, And and Game of Thrones, that's half a hundred. You know, that's like too many you can count, you know. Uh, So they moved there uh, to Dragonstone in 114 BC and just 12 years later, the doom of Valeria surely came. And you wonder if... uh, if um, 
Einar the Exile, as he was known, Dan- D- D- Denise's uh, father, if he was like strumming his fingers on the throne of Dragonstone, being like, Jesus, when is this thing? When is this cataclysm going to come? I'm looking at my Valerian stock market and it's just all crashing. What's but uh, his faith yeah. was rewarded. And I the other thing is there's not much known about the pre-conquering period of Targaryens living in Westeros. Um, yeah, you kind of get the sense that they're kind of like they're they're like. You know how, like, when you play Risk and you occupy Australia for like 14 years? Yeah. <laughs> They're just stacking armies down there, stacking yeah. their reinforcements. Sure. Uh, because, like, literally, Fire and Blood has a single paragraph where they yada yada over the whole time period that explains yep. that they were occupied with events to the west, not east, during what's called the Century of Blood, which is when the entire continent of Essos is plunged in the Civil War to try to fill the power vacuum the old Valeria left. Um, mm-hmm. And it outlines the succession of the Lords of Dragonstone in a scant hundred years, starting with Aenar the Exile. You had Gaiman the Glorious, Aegon Zero, because Aegon the First is the one that conquers, Magon, Eris, yeah. and in quick succession, his sons Alex, Balin, and Damien. Then Arion, who gave birth to the Aegon the Conqueror that we know and love in 27 BC. Mm-hmm. I thought that's a lot of freaking Lords of Dragonstone for just a hundred years. And I wonder well, if also, what I kind don't of think scandal Dragonstone, like produces its own resources. Like, what are they doing? How are they? How are they surviving for generations? It does seem like the idea was they shook down everyone sailing in the Blackwater, like between <laughs> them and House Valerian. And there was another yeah. House Wick. Uh, yeah. W-Y-C-K it's like yeah you just it, it's kind of like the uh, crab eater strategy or crab feeder strategy and the step stones they were just running that at the mouth or, of the black you know imagine the great joys and they have three or four dragons yeah what kind they've of gone legitimate they <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that's so that's I thought that's um, it's it's not a lot known but I thought it's interesting detail especially since like you can get you can understand why the Targaryens just kind of take their dreams seriously because um, you know, between Danis, who saved their entire household with her prophetic vision, Aegon, who mm-hmm. conquered Westeros because of his, uh, you know, they they have a habit of coming true. Right. Yeah. What's That's good? How, how's the lore looking from your corner? Yeah, I, I you you mentioned uh, Vagar uh, in yours. I think this actually is perfect because it picks up right at the end of the period you just covered. So. Vagar is one of the three dragons that Aegon used to conquer Westeros, right? And Lena name checks Vagar in this episode, mentioning yeah. his massive size, right? So, like, maybe he's too big for the dragon pit. And then I think course, I think Vagar's a she dragon. Oh, you're which, right. You're right. Which Absolutely. is weird. Which because like they're also kind of hermaphroditic. Yeah. In like Maester have different theories on like you know are they always do they always stay one gender yeah um so anyway you're right but she is a she dragon and what Vasir says is maybe the dragon's too big for any place right and and so it, you get kind of get the sense that they don't they haven't really kept track of Vagar. he's dragon he's dragon skeptical he's still he, like he, Lyria using he that dragon powers. Yeah, Dragon Dubious. Now, Dragon Dubious, I want to yes. mention real quick how to pronounce this name because I was talking with David about this. And David's mm. very meticulous about how these, these names are supposed to function. And so he's created all of these grammatical rules for how the language works. But, of course, 
Martin, George, came up with this name before he had any relationship with a linguist. Right. So according to David, you never put a V and an H together. Like, never, ever. It mm. just doesn't... <laughs> It doesn't so make this any sense. This is a lone word from it. another another culture in uh, yeah. Essos, is it? Yeah. So he's had to come up with a little bit of headcanon to to kind of make this name, which doesn't make any sense in High Valyrian to make sense. And everyone says Vagar, and so he says, "Yeah, I'll just go with Vagar." The H always bothers me, but in my headcanon, and of course, David's headcanon has a has a a way of becoming actual canon, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he says that in High Valyrian, they didn't have a letter for F. So when Visenya actually, what did Visenya actually call her dragon? She might have called him or her Fagar. So if you Sounds want to be very super insane old school. Posse. Yeah, right. If you want to be super <laughs> old, old school, uh, you can say Fagar with an F sound. Uh, but of course, you know, all the characters on the show are saying Vagar. So that's, that's fine. Interesting. Yeah. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. Anyway, so uh, Vagar, I will use the V sound, was hatched on Dragonstone before the conquest, before the conquest. And uh, Visenya uh, claimed the she dragon as, uh, as a writer. That's, that's then, Aegon's older sister. Right. Older sister She's wife. The, She's sort of the warrior princess. Right? She is. She's the she warrior is queen, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it was really sort of Vagar and Balerion that did most of the conquering of the of the realm. And sure. so there's there's tons of stories of different cities that this dragon burned down. And I won't go through all of them, but I will mention that when Aegon dies in 37, it was Vagar that lit the king's pyre. Hmm. All right. So after s- several years of relative peace, Visenya used Vagar to put her son Magor on the throne, and Magor claimed Balerion, and so the two those two dragons kind of conquered Westeros twice. Hmm. And then after that, Visenya dies and leaves Vagar riderless for almost thirty years. Uh, Balon, which is Viserys's father was Vagar's next writer and remained so until his death. And so that was a about a 20 year 28 year period. And then that's when Balerion died and that makes Vagar the biggest and oldest dragon on the block by the time this this series starts. Yeah. And so here's what I'm I'm submitting. And I'm not leaning on any kind of spoilers to make this assessment. I think there's only one reason you mention that the biggest dragon in the world is has been unseen and is lost, and we don't know where to find him. And the only reason that you do that is that you want to bring that dragon into the series. And so I'm going to go out on a limb and make the bold suggestion that we are actually going to see Vagar before this season's end. I think and, you're probably. Uh, I I wouldn't bet against you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought, I thought it was interesting to hear um, that name mentioned in this episode. I think it's sort of like Chekhov's dragon. You know, you don't mention that name unless you're going to bring that particular dragon into the series. Chekhov's Fagar. 
<laughs> Got name checked. Yeah, no, I think I think uh, they, I, I'm I'm actually interested in seeing more than just the two dragons. We've only seen that's true. Uh, Cyrax and Caraxes. Yeah. Uh, One last a note. Ton more. Mm-hmm. One last note on on uh, uh, Fagar slash Vagar. Jordan's never described what this dragon looks like. So we don't know anything about the colors or the color of the, the the flame or you know the accents or anything like that. But according to illustrator Sam Hogg, he reached out to Martin's quote unquote team, whatever that means, mm-hmm. and the team said that Vagar is bronze with greenish blue highlights and bright green eyes. So we'll see if that is actually the dragon that we get in this. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if there's an idea because Balerion is the Black Dread. I wonder if there's an idea that as as um, dragons age, they darken. You know, they don't. You know, like oh, maybe they were brightly colored. Like what? But they just kind of like, you know, in the same way that some, you know, like the silverback gorilla gets gray. Humans get gray. Yeah. I wonder if dragons kind of like darken. You know, like yeah, almost like, like a, little like, like a, a crust of magma. You know, increase cool particular coloring or whatever. That that'd yeah. be interesting. I, hey, I, got, we'll I, I got a question as a mm-hmm. fan. All right, so okay. I'm taking off my maester's chain. Do you miss some of the lighter moments that we used to get in Game of Thrones? I, I kind of feel it's like it's been discussed. This yeah. show is very dark, and I kind of miss those human elements. There are some funny things in a kind of like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger one-liner kind of way. Like I, I liked uh, Sir Crispin, as I'm going to call him forever now. Uh, checking Damon and Damon kind of laughing and saying very good, but it's, it is, you know, and there's just kind of like uncomfortable chuckles. Like when they smash cut the Viserys walking through the the garden with little Lena. Sure. Uh, And he's kind of like, but yeah, Yeah. I, I do hope that we get an injection of, I never was, you know, I never thought I would say this because I hated him when I was reading it. We need, we need some mushroom. We need some injection of some mushroom. We need some mushroom. I keep stock wondering when he's gonna flavor. show up, you know, or is or is he like Tyrion? Where you remember how like at the the last episode of Game of Thrones, Tyrion finds out that he's been written out of the history books. Mm. So certain versions of history wouldn't even mention Tyrion at all, right? right? Right. Maybe we're watching a version of a history that doesn't include mushroom. I don't know. I just think that like the big the big sticking point is Peter Dinklage is just nailed Tyrion so well as and such yeah. a great representation of you know dwarfs and little people that mushroom is not that mushroom is not positive representation for for little folk. Uh, he 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 is kind of like the <laughs> well, worst okay, Westerosi stereotypes. Yeah, uh, I mean the, the maester is it Maester Eustace or who's the uh, maester that purportedly yeah, yeah, yeah. is riding fire? And I, he's not oh a fan Gl- of Gildane. It's yeah, Eustace Gildane. is his major source. Gildane yeah. thinks that mushroom is is this a is liar true. and so that's what I was going with. It's like the only way they could br- I think they could do mushroom if they get if they beg Peter Dinklage to come back. I don't think he's inclined to come back for various reasons. And they said, look, we're going to turn this depiction on his head. Mushroom is the new Littlefinger. He's calling shots. Oh, and it was a bunch of jealous maesters and septons that kind of turned him into the fool. He was mm-hmm. like the, ha- the 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 master of shadows because, you know, sure. we don't have master whispers or whatever. Master of spiders. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, 
that's the only because I because yeah I don't I don't think Dinklage is super happy about how you know I don't need I honestly don't need I don't even need a a book character I I kind of feel like they need to bring in they need to fill out this world with characters that wouldn't be mentioned in history they're like they need a commoner they need they need someone they need a hot pie who's just baking bread in the back room you know we have no real visibility into the small folk and uh and we it's have a, little a bunch bit, of wards who are very weighty yeah. and uh, and measured and and ponderous. Yeah, we need we need to definitely need some. It, it'd be nice to get some fun injected in the show for sure. I'm not saying I don't enjoy. I'm really enjoying this. Yeah, show. I just kind of feel like there's there's some there's some little bit of humanity that I feel like is missing. Yeah, and I do. That's hope the that one spectrum that the show is missing. We do need a little bit more haha's. I I think they can get there. Like I will be worried if we go the whole season and it's been this dry pie. You know, right. I'll be asking for some some of the best Dornish red to wash it down because it's dry (laughs) indeed. Maester Anthony, thanks once again for joining me on the corner. And uh, again, if you want more of Maester Anthony as co-host Steve, check out Double Dragon this season for his thoughts. And again, uh, special features like the interview with the uh, uh, the the uh, Valerian wordsmith, David Peterson, David J. Peterson. That's right. Check it out, Double Dragon. All right, thanks, man. See you next week. Bye. Okay, I got a few other kind of deeper lore questions uh, for the 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 post Maester's Corner segment of the show. Allison's up first. I want to discuss a few things about Allison. In a rogue prince, Mushroom tells a tale that Otto dislikes Damon because Damon deflowered Allison, as he liked to do to young maidens. Maybe that's also why he asked for her favor at the joust, and she has no problem giving it to him. There's also a tale that Viserys invited her to his bed well before Ama dies. I haven't heard you mention this yet, but have you noticed a parallel between Alicent bringing the history book to read to Viserys in his bedchambers to when she would bring the unnatural history books to read to old King Jaehaerys in his bedchambers as she was dying, as he was dying, rather? Also, in the Rogue Prince, it was said that Alicent was 15 when she read to Jaehaerys, and presumably that age when he died in 103 AC, that would make Princess Rhaenyra nine years younger than Alicent. Uh, they'd be 17 and 8 in the following year when Queen Ama dies giving uh, childbirth. It's interesting that the show appears to be making them essentially the same age and good friends at that, especially given where Allison Art takes her in the next year. Um, it seems like the show is leaning against the Mushroom narrative. And to be fair, Mushroom seems to exist mostly so George can get his amateur medieval bodice ripping porn out of the system mm-hmm. he can get all of his mirish swamp his, and his, his yeah. fat pink masts out of the system um i doubt there's a lot of truth into the mushroom stuff going forward because like it's just bonkers some of the shit he's saying like yeah that this this little girl is going in his old king's chambers with a book of unnatural sex history and you know prince damon is fucking all the young maids and all this is stuff that seems like mushroom is super interested in mushroom of course is the court jester who is one of the primary sources that master uh maester gildane is using to source the fire and blood fake encyclopedia about the targaryens um and obviously in the show they are aging these characters together which is against the the book canon to heighten you know the the story that there's going to be a rivalry here what better way to make the rivalry that much poignant if they used to be almost sisters at one point Mm. because that's absent from the book they never really had a a liking for each other um you Mm. know so 
Um, as a side note, Alice, uh, uh, Allison says, have you noticed the rogue prince varies slightly from fire and blood? For example, it tells a slightly different version of why Damon leaves King's Landing, stating that Damon is furious. Rhaenyra was named heir and proceeded to quit the city watch to head to Dragonstone with Viserya, not that he was sent away by Viserys, as it states in Fire and Blood in the show. I wonder why the Rogue Prince varies in these details. Could it be because it's from a different maester's perspective? One thing they say a lot about in the Warhammer universe is like everything is canon, but not everything is true. And I noticed that that's something that the Game of Thrones world, the world of ice and fire kind of rolls with because they have these in-universe history books that is purporting to be history, but just like our history books, sometimes things people get it wrong. They have different mm-hmm. um, ways of looking at things, prejudices, biases, uh, new shit comes to light. They get new tomes that replace old tomes. They're doing, you know, maesters are actively engaging about exploring the world and, and getting new book. Yeah. So like, I think these differences are something that Martin is playing with that he is kind of like playing this idea of, you know, broad strokes. Everyone kind of agrees on, but the nitty gritty, who knows the motivations? I don't know. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's more than just like him getting closer to the truth. I think he's intentionally playing with this idea of sometimes history just isn't right. Finally, Vito says the prophecy said at the end of the episode one, could a Targaryen, uh, wait a second. Let me try that again. So the prophecy said at the, so a prophecy that said at the end of episode one, could the Targaryen that's on the throne that's apparently required for beating off the, sorry, beating mm. back the mm. White Walkers. Ah, yes. You lose your hand of frostbite. You try too much beating <laughs> off of the White Walkers. Uh, could it be Jon Snow, King of the North? Uh, also, I was watching a George interview about how he always wanted a prophecy to come true in a twisted way, i.e. the prince that was promised born under a bleeding star. Wasn't there an old theory that a Targaryen impregnated Tyrion's wife at court? Could Cersei actually be a Targaryen or am I just looking to twist season eight to feel better? Um, I mean, these I mean, you're getting into hardcore theory crafting uh, and oh, well, uh, where a lot of our minds were at in between season six and season eight. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Jon Snow, long a speculated secret Targaryen, turned out to be a secret Targaryen. He could very well fulfill the prophecy. Danny is a twist because she's the princess, not the prince, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, so Cersei and Jamie are not often seen as secret Targaryens, um, but Tyrion is, is definitely seen as big secret Targaryen energy. Yeah. Uh, and I think you're looking like the, the Mad King is kind of semi-attested in canon sources that the Mad King did take li- li- take liberties with uh, Tyrion's wife around the time where it would make sense that she could perhaps get uh, the fact that, um, oh, man, there's some crazy ass, literally magical time traveling fetus theories involving uh-huh. Tyrion and Danny's baby getting switched at birth through some kind of blood magic time portal and it's it's yeah but but honestly to go i mean if, if you're if you're really feeling strong go back and look through some of the spoilers and the archives of this of this show uh, of this podcast because i i talk about almost every single one of those at some point in, mm-hmm. in the show's run but like yeah i i i think that like it seemed like the double d's were interested in any of that they're like, what are the popular theories so we can not do those and subvert it, which is the opposite, I think, <laughs> of what 
the people that really cared about the books and those prophecies wanted. So, right. That's all we got for this week. Uh, hopefully you got your email read. If not, uh, there's always a chance to to win the Game of Thrones feedback contest. That's actually the Hot D feedback contest at Hot D at BaldMove.com. You never know. You never know if you'll win or lose until you try to play the game. Hot D at BaldMove.com. Of course, you can uh, discuss lots of Hot hot D, both spoiler and unspoilered varieties over on our Discord at Discord.BaldMove.com. Uh, you can also follow us uh, along with everything that Bald Moves does at Twitter.com slash BaldMove. We will be back Sunday night, as we always will, um, for the duration of this season to uh, give our club members a live instant reaction show. Uh, non-club members get the first half of that, the instant take, where me and Jim just talk about our off-the-cuff uh, feelings and experiences with the show. Uh, club members get to enjoy the whole thing and participate live just after 10 p.m. Eastern. Go to baldmove.com if you want to find or support.baldmove.com if you want to find out more about that. And don't forget the other big fantasy 800 pound gorilla is entering the room with the 800 existing 800 pound dragon. It's the Rings of Power, uh, the Lord of the Rings spinoff by Amazon Prime Studios videos. I'm really excited about this one, too. We'll have full coverage of that out tomorrow, tomorrow evening, I believe, Jim. Mm -hmm. And we've got lore experts to help us out we're going to have a big feedback section it's going to be all fantasy all the time for the next few months here at bald move thanks for listening we'll see you sunday night and until then i'm your host aaron and i'm jim later later